Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. We have a new sponsor, Little Shop of Stories, located in Decatur, Georgia. It is possibly the best bookstore in the known universe. It's a local, independent children's bookstore, but they're so much more than just a bookstore. If you've never shopped there, you're missing out. You can call and speak to a bookseller anytime to get personalized recommendations and follow them on social media to keep up with the many, many events they organize. You can find them online at littleshopofstories.com and they ship all over the world. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And today we are discussing 1922 honor book Cedric the Forester by Bernard Gay Marshall, which is illustrated by J. Scott Williams. This is the second episode in our 1922 series, and I have an annotation for Cedric the Forester from the ALA book, the Newberry and Caldecott Awards. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Cedric, son of a 13th century forester, saves Sir Richard's son and is made his squire. Taught to read and fight, Cedric becomes the best crossbowman in England, and at the Battle of the Eagles, he is knighted. Something they leave out in this annotation, it's something that every child is going to be super excited about. It's about the the Magna Carta. (laughs) (laughs) What could be more adventurous than the signing of the Magna Carta? I know that my child regularly asks me when we're going to read about the Magna Carta and when we're going to read the Magna Carta. So, um, what child this... doesn't? <laughs> Kids love the Magna Carta, <laughs> and so do we. I can't say it anymore though, because I think it starts to feel like a tongue twister. Yeah. So, Marcy, what do you think about this book? <laughs> okay. So, as you can tell, we are trying not to laugh because. We are very excited to be covering the very first year of Newberries, and we love the Newberries, but the first year is a little bit of a slog, I have to admit, and I know that our last episode was a book that made us both fall asleep repeatedly, and this book does not do that. I'll give it that. Like, did you fall Did you fall asleep during this book? I didn't. I didn't fall asleep, but I wished I were asleep. <laughs> okay, so this book, uh, I have some issues with. I have some issues... With the plot and characters, like, I think I can address that reasonably, but I think the main issue with this book is the language. Like, what do you think? Yeah, it's so stilted and it's so boring. Like, it's not as boring as the just laundry list kind of... Greek mythology from last time? Yeah, Yeah, from last time. But it also just feels, it feels like that one guy in your creative writing class (laughs) who is like... I'm smarter than everyone and I want everyone to know. And so they've created a, a a fantasy or historical fiction or something that's supposedly very well researched but is so grand in its writing that it's it's almost unreadable and you don't even know if it's actually accurate. No, you're right. You're right. And I mean, I was reading it and my husband came in and asked me how it was. And I just looked up and he was like, what? And I was like, pretty forsooth, this sucks. (laughs) I'm like, if I hear the word forsooth one more time, I'm going to throw this book across the room. Yeah. And knowest thou. Yeah. So, I mean, it just, you're right. It feels pretentious even for when it was written. So, you know, the, the author of this book Bernard Marshall, he was born in 1875. He, this is his first out of five historical novels that he wrote. 
And I guess he was wanting to be a writer for a long time before he did this. And I, I could see how, like, when you grow up on, like, Sir Walter Scott or whatever, like, older versions of Robin Hood, you kind of get it into your head that this is kind of the speech pattern. But it is so overwrought that it's, you're right, it's almost unreadable. I do like, because I was looking on the Wikipedia page for this, and it, it was part of the first book was published in a magazine called The American Boy, which is exactly what you think it's going to be, <laughs> that magazine. And the portion that was published was called Churl and Overlord. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, well, so that brings me to, like, the other problem that I have, which is that this is such a, like, story of, like, white male privilege. I, I can't even tell you. It's I, the way... Mm. <laughs> the way that everything is introduced is infuriating because – so, okay, to start with, this is the story of two boys, and Cedric the Forester is actually not the main character, even though the story is kind of about him, but the narrator, who's really the main character, is Sir Dickon Mountjoy, and he's, like, kind of the frat bro of the medieval times, and his dad – is back from from the the crusades and he just is such a snot and he makes these stupid mistakes that get him into trouble and Cedric saves him essentially even though you know Dickon is being an ass he really it just oh he basically he comes across Cedric in the forest and Cedric is killing a deer which obviously is poaching except Cedric explains that his dad is the forester there and they're allowed to kill a certain amount of deer every year and they're not even anywhere near their quota. And he, Dickon even says that like this kid is speaking with authority and seems to be telling the truth or whatever, but he still treats him like garbage and acts like he's lying and goes off to basically rat on him and is attacked by brigands. And then Cedric comes and saves him for no good reason. <laughs> and then gets dragged home and made into a squire for saving his life and has lifelong loyalty to somebody who was just a huge jerk to him. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. No, it doesn't to me either. I did enjoy that Dick and Mountjoy, the name evokes... Pervy things. <laughs> no, it, it evokes it evokes grown-up content. But that's that's pretty much all I enjoyed about that character. And I thought that I thought it was kind of anticlimactic, you know, like he becomes the squire and then there are these battles and everything. And then there's this, you know, political stuff and it just doesn't, it just doesn't really, it doesn't have tension on top of being pretentious and being long winded and not fun. It just doesn't really go anywhere that feels exciting or interesting. No, I agree. The one thing it reminded me the most of is when you watch a movie that's an action movie that doesn't have enough plot, but is all about like the filmmakers wanted to choreograph fight scenes and it's just like fighting, 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 fighting with nothing really happening. Like it just felt like that. Yeah. I mean, I've always chalked that up to just the way my brain works, right? With action like that. Like I just feel like I have missing some spatial intelligence. <laughs> and so I'm like, I don't understand how they got to that physical location and exactly what's going on. And it's really is just kind of a blur. But I also think that it's, it's, I think it's a, a little bit of a, 
a cop out, you know, like let's make things big and loud and, oh, there's battles like in this case, but there's not really anything that makes you want to keep going. No, I agree. I mean, I think it's, it takes, let's see, I'm going to look at my book. There is 30 pages of describing like a siege battle before you even get to a part where the main character leaves the castle and goes and meets Cedric the Forester. And there's no point to it. Like you could easily have covered that in two pages. I completely agree with that. And I feel like I actually read it online on Project Gutenberg and I feel very confident about the no money that I spent on it because, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not a collector like you, but I, I think it's great that you have a copy. But, you know, I do I did like the use here and there of different things like flowerettes and varlet and, you know, some some flowery or old fashioned language is fun here and there. It just is so compounded upon each other, you know, even in the non-dialogue, you know, in the exposition, it just kind of grinds everything to a halt and dulls the the action that may have been exciting. I, I agree. I actually, I mean, I don't mind archaic language. It's just that this, uh, I, I'll read a paragraph and let people hear Which what it's Which paragraph like. are you going to read? All right, let's see. I'm going to go, this is on page 66 in my copy. It says, Marvin turned away full eagerly to give orders for the making of the slanting trough of planks down which the bowling ball should roll. And as I saw the light in his eyes, my heart did warm toward our faithful and stout-hearted old follower that he should devise this play to save his archer fame. For plain it was to me that my father had been well pleased at this thought of Marvin's, believing that in this game, which was his very own and practiced by none beyond the lands of Mountjoy, he would display such mastery as would far outweigh any vantage that young said might gain at the bullseye shooting like it just (sighs) (laughs) it's too much it's too much it also I don't I mean I'm not convinced that this is accurate can I read a passage that I think is particularly illustrative of what we're talking about yes please so this is in chapter six I think it's called in the wolf's head den and sir Gregory says Sir Richard of Mountjoy, mount this horse of Hubert's here, which I freely give thee, while Cedric rides the good steed that bore us so bravely through the forest. My men shall make for me a litter of poles, with robes and garments slung between, and bear me to Manorlay. There will I abide till my wound is healed. Say to thy father, the lord of Mountjoy, that I renounce all the vengeance that my father and my brother swore against him, and that I extend to him also the hand of friendship. Twill please me well if, while I still lie at Mannerly, he and thou and Cedric come riding there and visit me, and so goodbye with all my heart. May thou win safely home, and heaven's blessing follow thee. I really feel like he thought he was being Shakespeare. People are going to never listen to us again after (laughs) hearing us read this. Well, they're either going to be insulted because they're going to say, this is great, or they're going to be like, I can't listen to this in my ear holes. Yes. Well, here's so here's what I was trying to say before is that I am a weirdo who thinks it is fun to read Samuel Johnson and like parse the sentences. You know, like I can take that, but I can't take this. I, <laughs> oh, it, this, hmm. the only redeeming factor for me right now is that this is more readable than last week's selection, which is really saying something like I could sit and read the book and get through it, but it was not fun, and I don't intend ever to do it again. 
Miami Book Fair is back in November with hundreds of your favorite authors and their new books, and you can see them in person and online. Come to downtown Miami or watch at home for best-selling children's and YA authors like Case and Calendar, Mary Pope Osborne, and R.L. Stein, the master of spooky tales and spine-tingling suspense. Rainbow Rowell, Chris Grabenstein, and Zoraida Cordova will also be there talking about love stories, mysteries, and mythical creatures like grumpy unicorns and fire-breathing chipmunks, plus story time, comics, arts and crafts, science experiments, music, robots, and other family fun in Children's Alley during Street Fair weekend. Stop by to learn how to play the drums, hang out with stilt walkers and balloon twisters, or write your very own poem. And there's lots of other cool stuff to do and see, too. Miami Book Fair starts Sunday, November 13th. Details at MiamiBookFair.com. I love sick burns in, like, old-fashioned times or old olden times, right? <laughs> and so one of the... One of the best things I read on it was on the Wikipedia. It was the critical reception of Oh my uh, god, I love that too. Bernard Marshall Bernard <laughs> yes, Marshall's work. Yes. So as a writer of historical fiction, Marshall's books were compared to Walter Scott's in length and descriptive details. Though another added that to call Cedric the Forester a second Ivanhoe was a mistake, adding Bernard Marshall has a good done a good piece of work, but he is not Sir Walter. <laughs> I know. I saw that too and I was gonna say it. Because it's hilarious, hilarious. It's such a good burn and true. I just, I, I love, I love high-handed, like old-fashioned, where they didn't use curses. It like was, it was very bless your heart. Yeah, I mean, it was. It's just, oh, it's just Which, perfect. Actually, I should probably explain for those of you not in the South. We live in Atlanta, and if somebody says "bless your heart" or "bless his heart." It is not a nice thing to say. <laughs> yes, it is not a nice thing to say. You can choose to take it as a nice thing to say if you really need that in that moment, but it really doesn't. It means something's wrong with you and I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. It also means a lot of other things, actually. There's what else can it mean? That you're dumb. Yeah. <laughs> if, if somebody does something really, truly stupid in front of you, you're like, oh, bless her heart. <laughs> Yeah. It, yeah. It usually, it usually does mean that something's, something's wrong with you and you've done something that's displayed that you've done, that there's something wrong with you. And that could be a myriad of things. They could think of you as not being as smart or being different and different can mean a lot of different things as well. That is true. So it's kind of a catch all. Yeah. So. But anyway, you know, so he, Bernard Marshall wrote this book. He wrote four other historical novels that were all sort of in line with this. It took, it took, it almost made a timeline between, although he messed up a few things on the timeline. It took them from this time period in England, the time of, of Richard Lionhearted, and went all the way through uh, the American War of 1812. I will not be reading any of those either. Sorry to say. <laughs> <laughs> but they're out there, and if by some miracle you read this book and you like it, which is fine, we're not going to judge you. I'm just going to judge a little, but I'm we gonna, won't say it to your face. We'll judge the book. We're not judging you. Don't yeah. worry. No, I, no, we're I professionals. Like a, <laughs> I like a lot of very like questionable books, so it's fine. But they're there if you want to read them. You can look them up. And he also wrote some, I think, short stories, but mostly articles. And I found a little bit about the illustrator. What did you think of the illustrations? I actually really like the illustrations. Um, um, what did you think? 
I liked them too. I did think that I, I think it just has to do with me reading it on the Project Gutenberg. They're a little bit muddy sometimes, like they weren't scanned very clearly, and mm-hmm. that happens, you know. But overall, I thought they they reminded me a lot of the Prince Valiant comic strip that ran for years and years and years. That was started in 1937 by Hal Forrester, mm-hmm. and it has that very kind of medieval adventure comic vibe to me. But of course they're they're just line drawings. They're not they're not color. No, but they're but, really like they're very detailed and the textures are great. Like I, I thought they're pretty impressive. They look like engravings to me. Mm-hmm. My copy of this book is a reprint. So my it's actually a pretty good scan, but it is a little bit muddy as well. But I, I have to say I, I do really like this style of illustration and I think it's very well done. So John S. Scott or J. S. Scott Williams. He was actually born in Liverpool in 1877, and then he came to the United States in 1885 and studied nights at the Art Institute of Chicago. He regularly illustrated for newspapers and uh, magazines of the time like Saturday Evening Post and Collier's, and he had a studio in Greenwich Village and then served as like the head of the fine arts department in Wyoming State. He did the stained glass windows for the library of the University of Illinois. Um, and he did a lot of other stained glass windows and murals in Indiana in their state library and historical building. I love doing oh, stained glass. That's so cool. And also at John Hopkins. So, and then he died in 1975. So, I mean, he he was 89 years old, which wow. is pretty remarkable. And so I, I do, I, I would like to see a lot more of his, his art. I think it was, it was the one thing I kind of looked forward to. Yeah. When you, when you first started talking about him, you said he studied nights and I was looking at the illustrations when you said that. And I'm like, I thought you meant K-N-I-G-H. And where do, I'm like, where do you go to study nights? <laughs> I mean, I guess you could just go, you, you would go and to archives and read books and stuff. But yeah, you, yeah. I don't think there's an institute of night research, although maybe there is. I don't, I don't know everything. You're in the probably world. making some PhD students out there really mad. <laughs> if they are listening, yes, possibly, but you can let us know. We'd like to say thanks again to our sponsor, Little Shop of Stories, our local independent children's bookstore, for helping to make this podcast possible, both financially and through their phenomenal programming. They're offering an exclusive promo for our listeners when you shop online at littleshopofstories.com. Just use the promo Newberry Tart to get 10% off your purchase. That's Newberry with one R, N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T, to get 10% off your purchase. For this episode, I have a little bit about the voting process, in particular, uh, the Newberry Medal voting process for the first medal. And this is from a an article by Leonard Marcus. I love Leonard uh, called Marcus. Three Pioneers that was published in 2008 and Publishers Weekly. In 1921, the the executive committee of ALA decided to authorize the awarding of the Newberry Medal at the next year's conference. And it says, quote, librarians seeking relief that June afternoon from the sweltering heat gathered on the hotel's oceanfront veranda and immediately fell into speculating about what book might have received the Newberry Medal in the current year had there already been a Newberry Medal to win. As the Brooklyn Public Library's Clara Whitehill Hunt recalled, Hugh Lofting's The Story of Dr. Doolittle swept the field, leaving those who played the game that afternoon feeling pleasantly satisfied that they and their colleagues did in." Deed, know a superior book for boys and girls when they saw one. 
The librarians returned home exhilarated. Never was there such a conference as this. Library Journal reported breathlessly. Now, exhilarated librarians are like nothing else I have, do you have to tell you. That's me speaking, not quoting. <laughs> I've seen them. Um, it's true. <laughs> so they decided to do it by committee, at least this first year. And a committee with Hunt as chair wrote the guidelines, which stipulated that any librarian engaged in at least part-time work with children a 1921 survey found that 472 librarians met this standard should be eligible to nominate a book. To give everyone this chance, Hunt noted, will create interest and induce good feeling. Hunt, however, had no desire to leave the final decision to majority vote. It is most important that the final judges of the award be a few of the people of recognized high standards and experience. Oops, snob. If a majority <laughs> vote of all so-called children's librarians determine the award, it is entirely possible for a mediocre book to get the medal. I mean, out of the field that we saw, I don't, mm. I don't know how I feel about that. And this should be the last, the last bit that I want to quote from here. The outcome of the hastily organized first-round ballots for the 1922 Newberry all but mooted. Hunt's concern with when the 212 nominating votes cast were tallied on March 8, 1922, it was found that 163 votes had gone to a single book, Dr. Hendrik Wilhelm Van Loon's The Story of Mankind. So overwhelming had been the vote, the first runner-up, The Great Quest by Charles Boardman Hawes, received 22 votes that Hunt and her inner circle felt no need to deliberate further. Just reading through that, it's it's very interesting to me to see that it was open at the at first. You know, it was kind of being going to be a popular vote, and then it was decided by this one librarian that no, there's also going to be an inner circle is kind of a fail safe. And I feel like we still the library profession still operates like that to some degree, which is for better or for worse, it still operates that way. Does it feel so. Does it feel great to have been in that inner circle? Um, yes, because I feel like I was picked in a non-shitty way and I feel like, <laughs> yeah. um, I feel like Hunt was being really kind of snotty, honestly. I mean, cause when you say something like that, like it needs to be the highest caliber, you mean your friends that you know. Well, and I think that that is actually one of the problems that I have with the books from this year is that they, they do seem to be aiming at like highbrow books rather than engaging books. Yeah, so the next thing I'm going to do for next episode is I'm going to go in and look at some other books that were published in 1921 and see if there were some other candidates that might have been more interesting to us as modern readers. Yeah. Yeah, no, that'll be interesting to hear because I think they're right. Like Dr. Doolittle would have been much more fun to read. Do you have any readalikes? I really don't. I um I mentioned Prince Valiant. I think that's worth checking out if you find this time period and the treatment of uh this time period with knights and King Arthur and everything. I think that's a probably a more interesting take on it. But I also can't vouch for the content because it's been a very long time since I've read any of it and it's possible that it has things in it that may be kind of unsettling or upsetting or problematic. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I have a couple. One is since they mentioned Sir Walter Scott, like if you do want to go back and read Ivanhoe or anything else by him or any of the more original Robin Hood tales, like you still get the old fashioned language and you still get the, the sort of Norman Saxon conflict situation, but I think just better done. 
Also, Adam of the Road, which is another Newbery book, which is not exactly the same, but it's about a minstrel living sort of in medieval times and is much more readable. And if you want just sort of the old English experience, but in a really engaging way, that's a really good one. And then for really more specifically similar to the time period covered in this book, The Outlaws of Sherwood by Robin McKinley is one of my like top 20 books ever. It's incredibly readable. It has really strong female protagonist, and it's just a really good Robin Hood story. There is a lot of fighting. There's a lot of the same stuff that bugs me in this book, but just done in such a really fun and engaging way that it's compelling instead of boring. I am extremely glad that you are into this kind of genre slash time period. So <laughs> I cannot. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I, well, that book in particular, I just love. So, but yeah, I do. I, I actually really do like the whole Robin Hood, Richard Lionheart, like fiefs and lords and all that. Like I do enjoy that. And I guess that makes it even worse that I don't like this book because I should like this book. <laughs> <laughs> should is a strong word. Yeah. So I guess to sum up, I would say that the only reason I would recommend this book, if you're recommending books for children specifically, is if you have a kid who's just really, really super into that particular time period in English history so that they're willing to like slog through the language because otherwise it's it's tedious and there's and there's better ways to read it. Yes, I would agree. There was nothing that stood out to me as being particularly problematic or harmful to a modern reader exactly. No. But but also my eyes were glazing over at some at <laughs> a lot of points, so I I think the only the only thing that I don't know, there's nothing that is problematic in terms of like race or or you know, sexuality or anything like that. It really what bugged me the most was just that Dickon was stupid and didn't have to have any repercussions for his choices. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thanks for joining us for our discussion of Cedric the Forester by Bernard Marshall, illustrated by J. Scott Williams. The next book, our third episode, will be The Windy Hill by Cornelia Meigs, illustrated by Elmer and Berta Hayter. Thanks for joining us today on the Newberry Tart Podcast. Please find us on social media. We're on all the usuals. And please rate and review us on whatever platform you listen. It helps other people find the podcast and helps keep us going. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.